so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Olivia Enos, who's a senior policy analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation. And today we talk about human rights and global affairs. In her role at the Heritage Foundation, Olivia focuses on human rights and national security challenges in Asia. Her research spans a wide ranging of subjects, including democracy and governance challenges, human trafficking and smuggling, as well as religious freedom and refugee issues, along with other social challenges in the region. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Olivia, I'm really glad to have you here on the Digital Public Square podcast. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about what led you to work in the area of public policy, specifically focusing on human rights in the Asian region? Oh, I love answering this question. Um, I became really interested in human rights issues and in Asia starting my junior year of college, um, where I took a course, a little bit obscure, but it was on the negative impacts of communism worldwide. And Asia featured so prominently within that course, obviously China, but Cambodia and Vietnam, and then of course, North Korea. And I, when we got to the North Korea part of it, I honestly couldn't believe that I had made it all the way to my junior year in college. And I had no idea that there were individuals inside political prison camps there. And I had, of course, read about, you know, Nazi Germany and like, the plight of the Jews. And that had always like that truth had always arrested me. But the fact that it was happening now made me want to get more involved. And so that that was really kind of my gateway into an interest in human rights issues in Asia. And I used to think I'll only be happy if I work on North Korea issues. But I have loved being able to expand that work into China, Burma, Cambodia, and just, you know, more generally religious freedom or democracy and governance or some of the other more functional issues that do arise within the region. 
Yeah. Well, I know from my perspective and those of us at the ERLC, we love you and we love your work um, and been <laughs> following you for a very long time. And I'm really excited to have you on the podcast to dig into some of these issues, uh, especially kind of some of the prominent global issues that are going on right now. Naturally, people are thinking about what is the state of American foreign policy? How should we be thinking about uh, the state of human rights and religious freedom abroad? Um, but obviously talking about the state of kind of the international order or the international human rights is a pretty tall order. But are there some specific themes that you're seeing kind of arise on the state of religious freedom, especially in the state of uh, human rights today that we should be aware of? Yeah, I think there's one really broad overarching theme that I was surprised by when I first came into this work, which is that there tends to be, at least in U.S. discourse, a major disconnect between the need to promote and to safeguard human rights and freedom and understanding how that's connected to broader national security goals or to broader U.S. national interests. And I think, unfortunately, you know, previous generations of policymakers really did divorce those two issues, not seeing them as working or reinforcing one another. And I think that some of the conversations that we're having particularly around China, are making it far more evident that advancing U.S. interests, safeguarding liberty, et cetera, are things that require both a national security mindset and a human rights-focused mindset to really come together. And what that means practically is looking at tools that have traditionally been used only in the security context, like, say, sanctions, for example, or visa restrictions, or you know, even like atrocity determinations are things that were maybe only used for security purposes and, and now saying, nope, you know what, those actually can be repurposed and used in the human rights context to make advances in both realms. And so that's a really interesting theme to me. And I think that it was one that these were much tougher arguments to make before we started seeing, you know, the CCP carrying out ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity against Uyghurs. Um, it was harder to make in the North Korean context Context, even though there are amazing arguments that tie those security and human rights issues together or in Burma. And I, I do wonder if we're starting to see like a, a seed change on these issues where human rights issues are seen as strategic and not as sort of distracting from some of the security challenges that are equally pressing. Yeah, one of the things that I've kind of noticed, especially as of late, you know, with the war in Ukraine, with Russians' invasion, I think naturally kind of all our eyes are fixed on that right now. I mean, I think for most most of us, we're glued to social media, to news, trying to follow kind of what's going on. It's really interesting to me. This is the first kind of major war where you've had a lot of access to social media. I mean, it's one of those things that we're seeing real live footage coming out of uh, right from the ground and it's hitting social media before it hits some of our traditional media outlets. And that's, you know, we don't have to get into that today about kind of the rise of misinformation and disinformation that's being used, especially by the Russians in the midst of this kind of running a massive disinformation campaign. But obviously, I don't have you on the podcast to talk about Ukraine specifically, but I do know that often... Um, a lot of these authoritarian leaders kind of run together or support one another. And you're starting to see some of that as the international order comes out against what's happening in Ukraine and supporting the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian leadership. 
you don't see as much of that, especially coming from the Chinese Communist Party, for example, or the Kim regime in North Korea. So can you tell us a little bit maybe of some of the relationships between these regimes and these countries and some of the kind of parallel themes that we're seeing? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question and one that really deserves a lot of thought. One thing that I have noticed, especially vis-a-vis Russia and China, is that although they have many diverging sort of domestic political interests, both Russia and China are very much so aligned in their opposition to the U.S. and in their commitment to undermining U.S. power and influence throughout the globe. And so I think that whenever there are various forms of crises, whether it is the Ukraine crisis, as you mentioned, you know, I think all of our hearts go out to the Ukrainian people or the CCP just, you know, latching on to sort of any opportunity that they have to grow their power, I definitely do think that you see those convergence of interests in continuing to counter the U.S. And so I think that's always something to be keeping an eye on and watching out for. And uh, Jason, I also really appreciated your point about the fact that in Ukraine, we see faces, we see real people. We see the crisis unfolding, you know, from our own computer screens or our cell phones. And I think that that point is such a poignant one because for many of the crises that we have in China or in North Korea, you don't have that type of imagery or that very personal connection. And I think that's like a niche that we as observers have to try and fill by seeking to elevate the voices of people who have managed to escape and who have survived the persecution of these regimes. And so, yeah, I think it cannot be underestimated the importance of putting names and faces to crises because it's hard for people to feel motivated to act until they realize this is a mother or father, this is a neighbor, this is a friend, this is a son or a daughter, just like the people that are in my own community. And I think that is such an important point to make. Yeah, I really love that. As you saying, kind of what's happening in Ukraine, obviously it's a global scale. All eyes are kind of on what's happening in Ukraine. We're seeing kind of real-time footage. But as you mentioned, we have crises going on around the world all the time. We have coups, we have slaughters, we have genocides going on as of right now, especially in China with the Chinese Communist Party. And so it's it's really interesting that we kind of have this focus and kind of unified voice on Ukraine. At the same time, we have a lot of human rights violations and travesties going on around the world that should also take our attention. We should be focusing on those as well. Uh, recently, we hosted Bethany Al Ibrahim from Axios on the podcast right before the Olympic Games, kind of previewing what was to come, some of the big questions, especially with Beijing, in many ways, the show that they were putting on with the Olympics, covering up some of the massive human rights violations, uh, what was happening in Xinjiang, what was happening in Hong Kong and other places. So I wanted to kind of have you on the podcast to talk about what happens afterward. What did we learn in light of the Olympics? Um, It's really interesting, kind of the International Olympics Committee and some of the conversations they've had after the fact about not hosting games in certain places or banning certain athletes, especially with the travesties that did take place and are still taking place in, uh, in China. So can you kind of update us on that situation, kind of what we learned about the Chinese government and specifically the treatment of the Uyghurs? Yeah, so I think the Olympics 
were a real missed opportunity in many ways. It was an opportunity to highlight the plight of the Chinese people, especially, as you mentioned, the ongoing Uyghur genocide. For those who are not familiar, there's between 1.8 million and 3 million Uyghurs currently held in political re-education camps today. Um, So we all are bearing witness to that genocide right now. And of course, we all bore witness to what happened in Hong Kong, where the Chinese Communist Party essentially eliminated, obliterated um, what was once a bastion of freedom and changed people's lives completely overnight. And of course, we also saw the Chinese Communist Party lying in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic to the international community about the infectiousness of the disease. And we've all, you know, faced the repercussions of those lies. And so the International Olympic Committee made an incredibly misguided decision to select Beijing to host in the first place. They should never have been selected to host. And I would have loved to have seen the Biden administration take a much stronger stance by pressuring the International Olympic Committee, ideally in concert with allies and partners, to postpone the games for the purposes of selecting a new rights-respecting host. But of course, that didn't happen. You did have a diplomatic boycott kind of at the final hour, um, which was good. But it would have been far better to have had the stronger move to have stripped China of that privilege of hosting the most prestigious sporting event in the world. But I think despite some of those missed opportunities, we now have a chance to really hold China accountable in the aftermath of the Olympics. And I think that, you know, even though you do have a crisis going on in Ukraine, the U.S. being the global leader that it is, has to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to be able to address the crisis in Ukraine while also countering the ongoing abuses that the CCP is perpetrating. And I don't think that we can do that without the support of other allies. So I would love to see allies coming alongside of us in efforts to, for example, extend safe haven to Uyghurs so that they can find refuge within U.S. borders, but ideally also in other countries around the globe. Another area for allied cooperation would be to build on some of the sanctions momentum. The U.S., the European Union, the U.K., and Canada had issued sanctions, I think, in March of 2021 against some top Chinese leaders for committing genocide. But They haven't done much follow-on action. Um, And so there's, of course, many more people to be sanctioned. And then sort of, you know, a third area that perhaps we could build upon would be uh, uh, coordinating efforts to counter forced labor in China. Of course, the U.S. at the end of last year passed the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which goes a long way towards ensuring that goods produced with forced labor don't make their way into U.S. markets. But without cooperation from our allies, those goods are going to find other destinations. And so we have to work together with allies. And finally, I know I said that was finally, but one other point is just, I think the international community has got to rethink how to hold the International Olympic Committee accountable when they make poor decisions like selecting Beijing or, I mean, of course, they selected Russia before to host Olympics. I mean, we've got to be rethinking the standards that we have for hosting this prestigious sporting event. And I don't think it should ever again be granted to a country, certainly not one that is committing ongoing genocide and and crimes against humanity. 
Yeah, there's so much here. Obviously, we could take an entire podcast just to talk about the Chinese Communist Party and the plight of the Uyghurs and what's happening in Hong Kong and other places. Um, and obviously, at the ERLC, we have been also leading on this issue. The Southern Baptist Commission was one of the first, if not the first, Protestant denomination to call what's happening in Xinjiang a genocide. Um, and it's something we've been focusing on, especially from our Leland House, our D.C. office there, uh, focusing on these issues for a very long time. And one of the issues that we highlighted a few years ago, and it still have been kind of staying up to date on, but I think the focus has naturally shifted over to China and then obviously to the war in Ukraine and kind of the Russian invasion, is what's going on in North Korea and on the Korean Peninsula. Naturally, there are lots of different things we should, we can and should be rightfully focusing on right now. And I think in many ways, kind of our attention has shifted to the plight of the North Korean people and what's happening under the Kim regime. So I wanted to ask you kind of what is going on right now? Like what are some of the things that you're watching, some of the th issues that you're focused on right now, especially uh, coming out of the Korean Peninsula? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there was so much attention on North Korea during the Trump administration when you had all this diplomacy that was ongoing. I mean, many might remember like the Singapore summit and the Hanoi summit where we were trying to, you know, gain concessions from North Korea on, you know, their nuclear program and on their missile and weapons, various weapons programs. And there was a lot more talk about human rights issues, not after the summits. Unfortunately, human rights issues really didn't come up either at the summits or after Words. But definitely prior, you know, many people might remember Otto Warmbier, the American student from UVA who was detained um, and was returned to the U.S. in a comatose state where he later died. Um, I mean, this was not, this was a completely um, inappropriate situation where an American life was sacrificed by the North Korean government. Today, um, there's a lot less attention on North Korea, and I think some of this has to do with COVID because North Korea, the Kim regime, really closed its border. I mean, almost an airtight seal throughout the pandemic. And I think we don't fully know the scope and the scale of humanitarian challenges in North Korea. I mean, the Kim regime claims that they have zero cases of COVID that is like next to impossible that they've never had any cases of COVID. But beyond this, in closing the border, they most likely impacted what is known as the informal economy in North Korea. And the informal economy is what ordinary North Koreans rely on for their livelihood because they know that they cannot trust the government to be able to provide food, to be able to provide opportunities for them. And so I am very fearful, and some have even suggested that they might be at risk of some sort of Famine because the border with China is relatively closed, whereas it used to be more porous. And of course, imports between North Korea and China have reduced substantially during the pandemic. So I'm fearful of that. But one other thing that I would mention is that you know, North Korea, the UN found in 2014 that they were guilty of carrying out crimes against humanity. The regime fundamentally has not changed. And the basis for that crimes against humanity determination had things to do with political prison camps they have there, the food insecurity and, and the purposeful food insecurity that is perpetrated by the Kim regime is they redistribute resources towards their weapons programs and away from their people. Um, and none of that has changed. So I think it's, I'm personally saddened by the lack of attention in the international community and by the Biden administration to the human rights um, clause in North Korea. And for me, I'm looking both to, you know, can the U.S. issue an atrocity determination for North Korea saying, 
crimes against humanity, maybe even genocide, ha- have been taking place. Um, and also uh, in Congress, there is a North Korean Human Rights Act that um, is up for reauthorization this year. So Congress has a real opportunity to lead and to fill some of the niches of the issues that have, are, are newly arisen during the pandemic and also to just address those more longstanding challenges because there are no human rights. There isn't liberty in North Korea. And I think we really need to have a sustained focus in order to give the North Korean people hope. Yeah. Well, one follow-up on that. So you said you were talking about how the border has been closed and there's been communications and just knowing what's actually going on there. It's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to actually know kind of the state of uh, the Korean people right now. Is there any kind of timeline in some sense of when we think that those borders might open or that we might start to get kind of reports of what actually took place uh, over these last couple of years in North Korea? So the borders are slowly but surely reopening. Um, I think Kim regime is still very nervous about COVID and the like because they don't really have vaccines. They've been refusing, actually, vaccines that have been offered to them from the international community. And to compound the challenge of having the borders closed, during the pandemic, every single Every single one of the NGO workers that were working in North Korea left because they could not operate there. They could not get ordinary items, things like toothbrushes and toothpaste, things like medicine, medical care, standard stuff they could not get. And you actually have um, the vast majority of you know the very limited diplomatic core from other countries around the globe gone. Many people shut down their embassies there. So actually some of the sustained infrastructure that you had for getting information out of North Korea is now gone. So I think this is really difficult because you don't have World Food Program staff there. You don't have UN staff there. You don't have some of the smaller NGOs there anymore. And I'm worried about the ability, one, to deliver aid, but two, to get information out and to truly know the severity of the conditions that North Koreans are facing. So I, unfortunately, it's bleak and it's pretty sad news um, on the North Korean front. I think, I mean, obviously, listen to this podcast, listeners might be going, man, there's just so much going on right now. And reality yes. is there's more than just even the three countries we've talked about so far. Uh, there are countless human rights violations and atrocities taking place all around the world. I know recently you've been following some of the news coming out of Burma, uh, the military coup. Can you tell us about some other areas um, of concern or maybe areas that you're watching pretty closely, especially in relation to human rights right now? Yeah, so definitely have been watching Burma very closely, as you mentioned. Um, February 1st was the one-year anniversary of the coup in Burma. Um, Since that time, we've seen, I want to say it's close to 10,000 people who have been detained on political grounds, um, close to 2,000 people who have been killed since the coup started, and just a massive change in Burma. You know, it was once a place that people had hoped, you know, would have a bright democratic future, and the military just literally upended that in a day's time. Um, I hosted a program actually just this week at Heritage um, with Weiwei New and former ambassador for global women's issues, Kelly Curry, who were talking about the resilience, however, of Burmese women in particular. It was on International Women's Day and just the role that they played because the Burmese people, despite the military's best attempts, have not lost hope. 
they might be able to get their country back on a path toward democratic reform. And you see that through the civil disobedience movement and through the activism of so many women seeking to safeguard what few spaces are left for freedom of speech um, and the like. And the, the military, though, truly has tried to target in every way, shape or form, you know, talk about digital repression, cutting them off from the Internet at various points in time, cutting them off from cell phone networks and ability to call and exchange messages, all as a way to just kind of scuttle organizational efforts to respond. So I've definitely been following Burma. I think Cambodia is another really sad um, situation as well, um, where you've just seen Hun Sen, the leader there, also undermining democracy, essentially making it illegal for opposition parties to operate and subsist. So that worries me. I think in Southeast Asia in general, you're seeing a decline in the the space and the openness for democracy. So I'm very worried there. And I just think that in general, you know, one other thing, trend I will touch upon is that, you know, threats to religious freedom continue to persist. Many communities, um, whether these are Muslim communities, Christian communities, um, in the Chinese context, Tibetan Buddhists or Falun Gong, these communities are consistently facing persecution. And not that they haven't been historically persecuted, but it seems like the use of technology to track people has really expedited government's abilities to suppress not only their capacity for practicing their religious faith, but the government's capacity to target and silence them. And I'm not sure that the Biden administration is bringing to bear the same type of political momentum in elevating the promotion and the safeguarding of religious freedom as a foreign policy priority. I can't say that the administration has abandoned, um, you know, these policies. They still release the religious freedom report. Um, there have been, you know, some efforts to raise the issue, but it's just not quite the same as what Ambassador Brownback was doing under the previous administration. And so I'm a little bit fearful that as we see declines in democratization and increases in authoritarianism, that some of the communities that often face the most acute ire of the government are going with very little international attention due to perhaps a lack of U.S. leadership on these important issues. Yeah, I'm glad you um, kind of brought in the religious freedom angle because obviously that's something that's our middle name um, at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, but something we have a strong emphasis on is protecting and advocating for international religious freedom, not just here domestically, but also abroad. And often it's been said that uh, human rights travel together. So the right to life, you also have the right to religious freedom. Um, and so I, I wanted to kind of, you've already talked a little bit about kind of the state of religious freedom and how some of these things sort of travel together. Um, but can you speak to kind of the, maybe the religious aspects of even what's happening in Xinjiang? I mean, these are weaker Muslims. It's not just a, a people group per se, but it's also a religious people. You see this in other places where religious communities have been intentionally suppressed, uh, whether it's a state form of religion or a state-sponsored church or um, an atheist government. And a more authoritarian, atheist type of government um, who's rejecting any influence of religion in the public square. Can you kind of help us to understand how these rights often travel together? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like the Chinese Communist Party is one of the most vivid examples of, you know, basically the rationale that governments will roll out for why they persecute persons of faith. Uh, I mean, the Chinese Communist Party has a stated goal of sinicizing religion, and sinicizing is essentially an attempt to secularize religious practice so that it conforms with the Chinese Communist Party's goals and ends. So the CCP, you'll hear them say things to the effect of, 
we're okay with religious practice, just so long as it, it doesn't, you know, supersede sort of the allegiance to the state or the allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party's political goals or aims. And so, I mean, as a, as a Christian myself, I mean, I can't imagine saying, oh, well, yes, my Christian faith is secondary to the Chinese Communist Party's political aims or their desire to consolidate power. It's just completely antithetical. And so in practice, I think it means that most religious cannot be practiced according to the most closely held beliefs. And I think that the rationale that they will give for this and the CCP in particular will identify all forms of religion as extremist, and then they will use that type of justification to target and to silence religion. But I think you see this also in the North Korean context where they actually saw the power of religion in a lot of, you know, former communists or especially post-Soviet states where like Romania or Poland, where religion played such a key role in animating people's opposition to the government. And so they will say, we can't have religious practice because we can't have opposition. Position. And we see the two as, you know, being uh, simpatico or like synonymous with one another. And so they will target, uh, especially Christians in North Korea, and many of them face some of the most severe forms of persecution being sent to political prison camps, facing additional forms of torture if they're caught with a Bible, or if they were sent back from China to North Korea, they'll be asked, did you have contact with the South Korean missionary? And if you do, you face more severe persecution. So I think, you know, Governments are so fearful of people holding allegiances that are higher than the government itself that they will do a lot and justify a lot to counter any sort of religious practice. And so I think that the positive or the other side of this is that when governments do cherish liberty and they cherish religious freedom, it has implications for other forms of freedom, for freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of association, that I think oftentimes we see those different forms of rights tied together. And so when you promote religious freedom, you're not only promoting religious practice, you're also promoting human rights more generally. And it's almost like a gateway drug, if you will, <laughs> um, to promoting other rights and, and liberties. And so I think that's why it's so important for religious freedom to be a very stated and obvious goal of U.S. foreign policy. Well, obviously, so far in our podcast, we've covered a whole lot, really most of the international order and a lot of the major crises that are going around the world. And one of the things that I really love about you and your work is how thoughtful you are about these really important issues. To that end, one of the things that I'm really excited about is in this next year, uh, we've been able to have you as part of a new volume that we're working on with BNH Academic called the Digital Public Square. You kind of alluded to it earlier, some of the ways technology is being used, especially in the hands of authoritarian regimes to suppress human rights, especially religious freedom. Uh, we not only see that on the international order, but in some sense, we see that even domestically. Um, about just the power and the influence of technology companies, uh, which is interesting to me on that front is, and we write about it a little bit in the book, is that you kind of had a shift in the global order in some sense. Um, in recent decades, you've had the rise of these transnational technology companies who not only operate in a Western context or just in the United States, but they also inter operate internationally. 
and they're, uh, they have to abide by certain local laws and international laws. And there's also obviously issues of human rights and work with the UN. And it's, it's a complicated uh, situation, especially on the international stage. And so you have a chapter in this forthcoming volume specifically focused on the international aspects of technological kind of authoritarianism. Uh, digital authoritarianism. So we won't go super in detail because we want folks to go and purchase the book and read your really uh, your really great essay in that. But can you give listeners kind of an update on kind of the state of play um, on some of the use of technology, especially in terms of human rights? Yeah, well, Jason, I'm so grateful to you for including me in this volume. It was just a real honor to be able to participate. And um, I think for me, it was just really wonderful to be able to think more deeply about the role of technology, both as a purveyor, a potential safeguarder of human rights and religious freedom, but also just to be able to study some of the ways in which authoritarian actors are really manipulating this tool that I think a lot of us perhaps even naively thought would be a force for democratization and just subverting it for purposes of authoritarian ends. And so that's been really concerning to me. And I think one of the most concerning you know, trends that stood out to me was the ways that actors like China or like Russia are seeking to blend the digital realm with the physical realm. And one of the reasons why they're doing this is because, you know, actors like the Chinese Communist Party recognize that if we can control what people think, and if we can do that best in the online setting, then we can control how they act. And we can also control how we respond to their actions or to their thoughts. And one of the scariest ways that they're blending the digital realm with the physical realm is, of course, in the surveillance state context, where what somebody says online can be punished in the real world and so expeditiously. I think the fast-paced nature of technology and its ability to punish somebody almost instantly um, is truly terrifying, and it's not lost on authoritarians. And so I think that was one trend that really stood out to me from my research and my work in preparation for the chapter and is something that I know for sure will be integrated into other areas of my work. And even though I'm focused on Asia, I feel like it it applies beyond the Asian region, too, as, as a trend to watch. Yeah, it really does. I mean, even speaking kind of outside of the Asian region, even in Russia, in recent weeks, we've seen a law be passed that can uh, you can be jailed up to 15 years uh, for spreading disinformation. Uh, and what the Russian regime claims is disinformation is anything contra the Russian military and kind of the official Russian narrative of what's happening in Ukraine. And that's a very modern example, a very contemporary thing that's happening right now. Um, but we've seen this kind of all across the world is the use of technology. And the one, one of the ways we talk about it here a lot on the podcast is that technology isn't really a separate set of issues per se. It's really an element of all of the issues that we've been dealing with for a long time, whether it's religious freedom or human rights, issues of biblical justice, issues of even marriage and sexuality, uh, which are some of the core elements of what we focus on as an organization. Technology isn't a separate set of issues. It's really just an element of all of them because we live in a technological society. So I'm really looking forward to this volume, especially your chapter. Um, So hopefully we'll be able to get that into hands of folks within this next year or so. Uh, But to that end, especially in terms of resources, uh, one of the things that we always do here on the podcast as we're ending is talk about some uh, resources that we can put in the hands of folks, Um, especially if they're interested in digging a little deeper on some of these ideas, whether it's human rights or religious freedom, especially kind of within the Asian region. 
Um, so I'd love any kind of books or recommendations, resources that you would uh, be recommending for folks if they want to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, this question is so fun, um, and it gets to the nerdy elements of being a, <laughs> a policy analyst. Um, so I have a book on China that I recommend to pretty much everyone. I read it in grad school when I was at Georgetown, and it's called China's Search for Security by Andrew Nathan and Anders Gobel. And I can genuinely say that I think that I didn't understand China's foreign policy goals until I read this book. It just really simplified things. And I, I you know, I won't give the punchline of, of what it is because people should just read it. But if you're looking to understand China's foreign policy and what might motivate some of its actions, they're paradigm is very different from a U.S. one because they're much more internally focused than they are externally focused with their foreign policy. And I just think it's an incredibly insightful book. And considering that it's written by one academic and one practitioner, I think it really combines um, the best of both the theoretical and the practical world. So I love that. Um, for folks who are really interested in learning more about the underground church in China, China Aid, which is run by Bob Fu, is a fabulous organization. I know there are a lot of listeners who care deeply about religious freedom. Um, and so, you know, I would just sort of commend that to them. On North Korea, The Aquariums of Pyongyang by Kong Chol-wan. It is a firsthand account of a North Korean refugee who lived in a political prison camp from age 9 to 19. Um, if you're wanting to understand what it is like to face the sharpest edge of North Korea's persecution, I think this book is fabulous. And if you're looking for a good organization that is doing just honestly the Lord's work, um, the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea does so much to advocate for North Koreans and to elevate their voices, which I think is essential. Yeah, I think those would be the main resources that um, I would direct people to, but I, I always love reading. So I'm always excited to offer um, books that others might enjoy too. Well, and we'll make sure for listener's sake to link to all of those in the show notes, as well as your work. I mean, you are writing pretty regularly opinion columns. You're putting together reports at Heritage and uh, just doing really fabulous work. And so, Olivia, we're really thankful for you, uh, the hard work that you're doing on these really, really important issues. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today on the Digital Public Square. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Jason. This was such a thoughtful conversation. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Olivia and learn more about her work, as well as the recommended resources she mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing issues of technology in the public square today, as well as stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hayner and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.